Hello, welcome to a new episode of Purposely Local, a podcast where we speak about local businesses, shops, and initiatives, and ideas that are shaping and transforming the new world of local. Our plan uh, is not to speak about how your business is doing or how you are doing or what your business is about. We will focus on the why is local and its purpose all in the same podcast. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Michelle Hoxum. Michelle and I uh, met during the quarantine at a community led by the ex-CEO of Kickstarter, Jancy, called the Bento Society. Michelle and I had a lot of fun actually having great conversations with uh, a lot of other folks in that community that I, was strongly, I strongly recommend you guys to check out. Michelle is the founder of uh, Propeller, a company that is helping social enterprises and values-based investors finding meaning and worth outside of the wealth. However, most of her work today is on a company called Revalue, where we're going to actually talk a little bit about it. She loves to read, bake, and gardening too. She claims to practice yoga 300 days a year. Is that correct, Michelle? I claim to practice every day, but I know it doesn't happen. So that's why it's 300 days. Awesome. That's great. And Michelle, I know, has been supporting a lot of local initiatives in her career and in her personal life as well. And it's always a pleasure to have a conversation with her. We not only interact through the community, through the Vento Society, but we had a lot of great conversations. And today I'm going to try to recreate one of those conversations in this podcast. So, so hopefully we'll be able to, to make it work. Right, Michelle? I'm game. Awesome. Welcome, Michelle. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. Cool. So I'd like to start with a little bit of your heritage and... Maybe you, if you can tell me a little bit, where did you grow up? What memories do you have for your for your childhood? Wow, thank you. I grew up in, I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and my parents lived there for, I think the first, like I, we moved back to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where they were both from when I was in third grade. And so I've lived in Grand Rapids for most of my life, but then I went to school in Dayton at University of Dayton, Flyers. And so I got a degree in finance there. And then I moved to Chicago and New York. And then I moved back to Grand Rapids about 20-ish years ago. So I consider Grand Rapids definitely my hometown. And while I obviously have not lived here always, it feels like it's always been a part of me. Grand Rapids is pretty well known for its like Dutch heritage. There's a lot of, uh, there were a lot of immigrants from the Netherlands that settled here. So Grand Rapids is also known as, ironically, I think it was, it used to be, and I'm not sure if it still is, but at least probably in the top five, I think it used to be number two at least, but for family owned businesses, and so I think in general, that creates a very local, bi-local sort of heritage because of all the local owned businesses that are here and how much they try to support each other with resources. And so it's a big part of the culture, I think, in Grand Rapids. Oh, okay. That's great. And what members do you have from, from those days that you can share today? Like from my actual childhood? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something that you remember that maybe you were particularly passionate about it or something that happens to you that it maybe trigger into something or, or an experience or a, or a job that you land or a high school, I don't know. Yeah, 
I would say that as a kid, I loved to ride bikes and I actually bought my first 10 speed by selling seeds door to door when I was probably in first or second grade. So that was a really big deal. Like I wanted to have my own bike and my dad said, well, go earn the money to do it. So that's what I did. I sold seeds. And I think that that was, you know, of like my love of growing things and being in the garden. As a kid, I also loved to bake and actually have really fond memories of always making sugar cookies. When we lived in Detroit, then I would box up these sugar cookies and send them to both of my grandparents during the holidays. And that was a big thing that I loved to do. And I still love to bake. So I think that started. And it turns out that actually my dad's, so my grandfather on my dad's side was a baker. And so I think I get that from him. And then I definitely, as a kid, my grandmother worked at a department store and she would always bring us clothes and she thought it was the greatest thing. And I always thought it was like terrible, right? Because it was your kid, you wanted toys and not clothes, but she always used to buy me like the greatest clothes. And I think that that also has evolved into my love of fashion. And it's really more about like, she ironically also wanted to be a haberdasher. So she wanted to move to New York when she was like in her twenties. And I just think that probably women, you know, she just didn't have the chance to do that. She lived in Grand Rapids and that wasn't really available to her. So, but now I, you know, I love fashion and I think that that's also a connection that we have together. So, but you know, my other grandmother would also knit actually, she was huge knit. She would knit all the time. And one year for Christmas, she knit me a whole shoebox full of Barbie clothes that were all knitted. And so <laughs> it was pretty fabulous. Like my Barbies were wearing, you know, this is like, hate to say it, but like in the seventies and so late seventies, but my Barbies were definitely wearing, you know, like knitted, like sweater pants. And wow. Like, yeah. Amazing. They were pretty fashionable. <laughs> that's pretty fancy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that's great. So you, you had, so fashion, gardening, baking. So a lot of things were, were around your childhood. And also, I noticed that you also traveled into different places, right? So you went to, I mean, listening to your story, you've probably been into, lived in like three or four different cities. How was that, how was that experience to, to move out all the time and, and be in different places? Yeah. I mean, I think that story of the bike, right? Like I wanted a bike because I wanted to get like distance between me and my house, right? And so I think that that's always been a goal of mine. And then as an adult, obviously that became something I could do, like like physically move somewhere. And I always thought it was a great adventure to be able to go and live in a different city. And so it was a great way to, I mean, exploration, right? Like that idea of the adventure of the unknown, And I think that that's why, I mean, obviously COVID put a, a bit of a wrench into that, but like, I love to travel because I love to understand, I mean, most of my travel has been on a pretty, like it hasn't been fancy travel, I wouldn't say, but the parts that I love about the, the travel is meeting people in their local environments, right? So um, not staying at like the high rise hotels, but before Airbnbs, like staying in like small little boutique hotels that are more neighborhood feeling like. So I just think it's an incredible way to learn 
to be able to travel and to be able to live in different cities and like kind of because each city of course has its own culture right so yeah um, having that experience and understanding what it does to the people that live there i mean dayton was a very like manufacturing based car really kind of town so like there was like lots of elements of that there and then of course chicago was a great you know that seemed like a huge city to me when i moved there and since i've actually lived there i think the size of that city's probably almost doubled but you know when i lived there it seemed like a great adventure and i i felt very independent i guess i loved being in different cities cuz it felt very independent and then I mean, living in New York was like, I thought I would never leave because I felt like that was really, that was like home. I relate to that. <laughs> yeah, like it really spoke to me, right? Like I just, I thought it was the greatest thing. I mean, I because my apartment was also, you know, the size of like whatever it was, like 500 square feet or something, you know, it's not like you wanted to be there a lot. You wanted to be out and exploring the city. But like, I mean, I loved that. I would go to Central Park and literally just like, my favorite thing was to sit on the steps of the art museum and watch all like the tourists kind of like being characterized by the artist, right? And like their reaction mm. to those sketches that they would do. And just, you know, it was, I mean, like the best people watching. So you have all these different hobbies and passions when you were a child. When do you think that passion turned into what you do today? Or it, it was a moment, it was a moment that you said, okay, I like this and now I'm going to pursue this and then I'm going to study this and then finally I find a job. How that happened? Because I know you do multiple things today too. And it's funny that now that I know your background, I can totally see all, all the correlations between your childhood and your present life. Mm -hmm. But is there any connections uh, on how you, how you found maybe one of those passions and then how you turned that into your profession today? Mm. Great question. I mean, my dad was a banker. So again, I come by finance, I think pretty, pretty naturally. And in fact, Angela, the founder of Revalue was joking with me today and said something, I said something about Wall Street and markets. And she said, I said, how did we get here? Because I was thinking of all of sort of the bad behavior and the things that happen on Wall Street and how, how we are able and not able to invest our own money. And she was like, yeah, it started in 16, whatever it was in the Netherlands. And I was like, yeah, we'll see. I mean, this is my genes. Like I can't help it, but I didn't set out to go into finance. But when I was in college, I felt like it was a big challenge. And so I wanted to do something challenging. So I got a degree in finance and then I got into the business and I thought it was rather boring, quite frankly. I just felt like there wasn't enough creativity in it. And so then that's when I moved to New York because I really thought I wanted to be a chef. Like I really wanted to be a pastry chef. So I tried that on, but it's also like incredibly isolating, right? I mean, you're usually like in the basement of the restaurant and there's not a lot of interaction with people. And so then that like led me to this idea that artists are incredible and they are so lucky to create their artisan gifts to the world, but a lot of times they're not supported and they, they're not necessarily, they don't know like the business in which to actually, you know, be paid well for their art. And so, and it doesn't have to be just, you know, painting art, but any sort of art, even the culinary profession. And so I quickly learned that my business background could be a strong support for like I would say, artisanal focused people. And so when I left New York, I had a clear like understanding and feeling of that. I came back to Grand Rapids because I got recruited to join a nonprofit that wanted to start their fund. They didn't do any fundraising and they hired me to do that. So 
then I got a very clear vision of what nonprofit work looked like and what that was all about. And then that really led to this understanding of what was broken in all these systems. And really where I am today is this culmination of wanting to help business owners and entrepreneurs, which stems back, I think, from you know the days in New York. That was very clear. And then being in finance now was, I, I got away from it because I felt like it was terrible, especially like in the 08 crash and I saw what happened. And then I saw that we weren't really learning from our mistakes, right? Like we were like, Ooh, we made it. Like we got through that. And then we just started doing all that same bad behavior again. And I thought we are never going to get out of this bad cycle of mismanagement in like the financial systems and holding accountable for that. And so then that really led to this like more regenerative space. Like how do we create finance that is regenerative And I really saw investments being extractive and I saw philanthropy being sort of like the way that people took their guilt essentially and said, oh, I'm just, you know, I I was extractive over here and then I'm going to take my guilt and put it into philanthropy over here and make myself feel better. And really my passion today is to help local businesses get funding and so that we can start like at zero, right? If we don't have to be extractive and then we don't have to not have dignity for those that are in the system, essentially in the nonprofit like arena as well, right? Like they deserve ownership and dignity as well. And I feel like if we can give owner and dignity uh, to business owners right from the start and help them in a way that they don't feel like they have to be extractive, then we all win. And now we're at a, a more level playing field for everyone. We don't have to have these huge gains that we are extracting from the planet, from our own personal lives, right? Because we're on these like treadmills to like always be productive. Yeah. Um, and so really trying to come back to this regenerative space and I don't know. I read this book that was suggested to me by one of our clients called Braiding Sweetgrass from an indigenous woman who's also a botanist. And it, it literally has changed my whole perspective on this idea of like permaculture and regeneration and actually not grabbing, even though things are available to us, we don't grab everything that we can possibly take. Right. And so that's all blended into my ideas around finance. And I knew I wanted out of it and I tried really hard not to ever get back into it, but Angela and Revalue and the work that they're doing and like this idea of there being a possibility of regeneration in finance, I was like, okay, I gotta be part of the solution now, right? I have all this knowledge and then this experience of like what didn't work. And so now I really wanna focus on what I can make a difference in. That's amazing. I'm very curious, first of all, What is the criteria for you guys to, first of all, what is your definition of local? Because that's something that I even, I struggle when I, when I started this podcast, you know, local could be anything today. And I'm curious in your side, like, I mean, you're, you're definitely, you know, very in a very specific industry and you're giving financial support to specific local businesses. So my first question will be, what is your definition of local? Yeah, it's funny that that's such a hard thing to define, isn't it? Yeah, right. And I love that you asked that because it's it's so true. And I think we do take it for granted. Revalue was founded in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So I think in the very early stages of that business, local was considered literally in the backyard, right? So companies that we would invest in were local companies that had a mission for doing something good. But now we have clients all across the country. And so local to someone in California is clearly different than what it is to somebody in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So 
we take a focus on our, it's very client driven, I would say, right? Like at least in this space. So it's whatever the client defines as local. And usually that is like their own sort of town. I would say that that's what most clients will define as local, but I think other clients have like a global worldview and they will say wherever there is local business being done for the benefit of the local community. So that more that money is staying local, right? It's not like being uh, shipped out, like say a big bank versus a credit union, right? Where that money is getting recycled and staying in the community. Then I think that that's where most of our clients and probably myself would consider that to be local, right? It's, it's again, that regenerative idea more so than, okay, where does the money enter and where does it exit? And I think if the money stays in your own community, then it's recycled and it has a, a more powerful effect. So I think it's about where it get, how it gets recycled, not necessarily it like proximity. Okay. Interesting. What is the, the criteria you guys choose? I mean, what, once you understand what is your definition of local, what is your main criteria to choose one versus the other? I mean, you, you mentioned your clients, you know, what is, what is in California local is different from what is in New Jersey local for me and, and, and then different for you too. So what, what would be your criteria when you choose which businesses to support? Yeah. So uh, a lot of times, again, our clients are bringing us these opportunities, right? And they're usually, I would say, all the clients for sure have to have a social mission. Like that's first and foremost. So that's probably outweighs even the local piece a little bit, because again, we know that we have clients across the country and somebody in Michigan might actually want to invest in California. But so I think that they have to have a strong mission. And most of the missions are something that is like worker owned or like a co-op model. So again, that regeneration and that, that joint ownership is really important. So that's, I think that's really a powerful screen of what kind of companies we will do due diligence on to decide if they are something that can be invested by with our clients. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And what do you think from a consumer point of view, what do you think is the best or what is the barrier that we still need to cross in order for people to be more conscious about consuming local? Mm. It's interesting. I just heard a podcast, how this is built. You'd probably love this, Daniel, with a, a senior, and he was a C, or he is the CEO of American Giant, which is the like sweatshirt, US made hoodie company, essentially. And he was mm -hmm. talking about how hard the supply chain is actually to stay local. The interviewer said, you know, are your zippers local? Like how, how are you defining local? Kind of the same kind of question or conversation we're having. Mm -hmm. And he said, it's really hard. He said, you know, the cotton is all U.S. based. He said, merino wool is not. But so it was interesting to hear how hard the supply chain is and to be local because we've outsourced so much, right? So I think And then, of course, his sweatshirts are $118, and you know you can go buy one at Costco for probably $20 or $15, right? So I think that there's definitely, and then I think of being in finance, and I keep like every day, right, in the Wall Street Journal, I'm hearing about inflation, and I think, good, right? Like, I, I mean, I don't want like an insane amount of inflation, but I think sometimes we get things so cheaply in our communities that we forget like the labor and the quality that needs to go into a quality product in order to buy that local, like to buy, I think, so I think it's like what we value is sometimes not clear. We value convenience over quality. 
And so I think, and we definitely value speed over, you know, like what taking the slow road to things. So I do think that like we have to shift our values into really appreciating what we can produce in our own backyard and then to only consume that. And if that means then that I can no longer eat pineapples because they're only grown in Hawaii, I I guess that that's something maybe I should consider, right? So Mm -hmm. I think it's like what's available to you, but I think because we are able to get almost everything now that people just are like, oh, well, then I'll just, you know, I'll pay either more for it or I'll pay like nothing for it because it comes from something that was produced very cheaply. And I think until we really go back to valuing how things are constructed and why they're constructed. Yeah, it makes total sense. What industries or, or businesses today you think are big examples of, of local businesses uh, that you want to probably give them a shout out uh, today that you remember? Mm. I mean, I think there are a lot of food providers out there that are, you know, there's um, some technology, I think, even especially with COVID that has allowed farmers to sort of cut out the grocery store actually and go direct to individuals, right? Like they can get CSAs that are still delivered maybe from more of a distance than what traditional CSA product would be delivered. But I think that there, like, there is some changes in the food, but I think that that's also then being willing to, to eat like what is near you. Right. So I think food, hopefully. Something like this, right. For example, <laughs> like this is a, for you guys that are listening and are looking at the video now. So I, I was on Sunday on a local farmer's market here in my neighborhood. And I was surprised that the guy from the farm that was selling something there, he gave me a card and he said, hey, we can deliver straight to your house. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly what you're saying. Yep. So I think the food is exciting. I think it's hard in fashion, right? You probably add to that. Like, I think it would be great to be able to sort of wear what was produced near you. But I think that that's a big challenge because a lot of materials aren't even grown in the United States anymore. So yeah, yeah, I, I believe in fashion is probably more about the proximity more than the like, uh, for example, the other, I, I actually had here as a guest in this podcast, um, you know, a couple of these guys, these two women that actually they just founded a thrift store in Jersey City here where I live, just focus on plus size women's. Uh, and for me, that's, you know, that's local. I mean, she's, she's doing, you know, consignment, but at the end of the day, she's focusing on one specific market that is, you know, not necessary. It's very underserved, as you know, mm-hmm. and also at the same time, it's super local. I mean, I haven't heard anything like that from any other location. She told me that there's probably two or three other initiatives that are similar, but it's pretty recent. Yeah. We do have one of a good friend of mine actually started a like kind of like a cut and sew place in Grand Rapids, which is amazing, right? And so the challenge there is she needs big orders, big batches essentially, right? To be able to make it profitable. Yet then in the beginning, there's like not enough work to make those big orders. And so I think she's always kind of caught in that tension. But yeah, I mean, I think if we can. I think we're losing a lot of like the artisanal capabilities, right? Because we are so consumed with consumerism. And so we want it fast, right? And we want it now. And so 
but I think if we were willing to slow down a little bit and to experience like our food, right? Where did it come from? Like you met that farmer, like how amazing is that, right? You know now, right? How your food is being produced as opposed to whole food, no, and, right? Like, and also, yeah. and also, yeah. And also going back to food, the taste is right? incredible. Like the, I think I, I'll be honest with you. One of my first biggest experience with local was when I went to a sweet ring. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, it's a salad. It's, it's a very interesting salad chain that basically what yeah. they do is that they, uh, I'm actually scheduled to interview the, the, the CEO. And mm-hmm. what they do basically is that they create, when you go inside the restaurant, basically you see a big blackboard and they tell you exactly from what farm is coming each of the ingredients in the salad place. So, but I'm telling you what I taste that salad it was for me like, wow, this is a real salad. Like I love salads now, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I used to like them, but now I like them more. Same thing. I, I make my own juices here at, at my house and I give it to my kids too. And the other day I actually bought all the vegetables in the local farmer market here. And it's incredible the different on the taste. Even if I make them and I put it in the fridge, my wife can have it three days after and it tastes the same. That doesn't happen with any of the groceries that I buy in any supermarket. Mm-hmm. No, because they've been sitting on a truck for too long, right? I mean, they're already sort of old by the time we get them. And so, or they've, I think, nutrient, you know, so that they can be like resilient to pests and whatever else, right? They've like their nutrient base is different or something. But yeah, I, I think it does make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. It definitely does. It does. Can you share with, with us maybe your latest local experience that you had and what was so special about it? Ooh, I mean, given the fact that I rarely leave my house these days, <laughs> <laughs> my house is very local. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pretty blessed to be in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I will say that uh, my last local experience was to meet uh, my friends that I used to work with at the nonprofit at a, what is now a very famous brewery, but founders, and we were able to have beers and we were able to sit in the pub and have, you know, beer, beers brought to us and not drink out of cans. And they were in drafts. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. The, I think one of the first big bottles of, of beers that I, you know, the, there are smaller bottles and bigger bottles of beers. So one of the first bigger bottles of beers that I ever bought in a Trader Joe's, it was a Founders. Nice. Do you remember what flavor it was? No, I don't remember what it was Founders. Okay. Um, okay. I think it was an IPA, if, I, if I'm not wrong. That, uh, they but, were, they're known, I, I feel like they're also known for their dark beer, but definitely the IP, I mean, the all-day IPA, right? Like is, yeah, yeah. really put them on the map too. So yeah, I would say we're really blessed in Grand Rapids to have a lot of good beer. There's a couple of really great, you know, I mean, that are national, right? So it's in, in like, that's an interesting dynamic, like dynamic that we are so well known for here. As, yeah. And now I think like some pretty decent distilleries as well. And I'm I mean, jealous. 
Also, mead seems to be like a pretty big thing. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. All my local things seem to be around. But my other favorite beverage by far, too, is I guess technically NA, but I guess you could argue there is alcohol in kombucha. But oh, yes, I love kombucha too. Yeah. yeah. A great friend does. It's called Sacred Springs, and he produces it with it's sound infused, and his flavors are really, really great. So, yeah. my last question to you is COVID. You mentioned COVID a couple of times, and I know because of our conversations that we're having, how, you know, all the changes that are, that are being happening with you and COVID. And I was going to ask you how COVID has impacted you and your life and your professional life in general. And if you can share a little bit of that. Yeah, sure. So of course it's impacted me. Revalue was founded by a husband and wife and the husband is an IT specialist. And so I feel like Revalue it, from its very early roots was very technologically focused and forward. And so when we had to go to virtual work, it was it was kind of a non-event because we were so used to being virtual and on Teams even before COVID. So, and because also I worked from home probably for the last six years, that was also, that that didn't seem like a big deal, right? But the thing that did change, of course, was this idea of running out to the local coffee store and, you know, grabbing my coffee. And we also have a lot of good coffee in Grand Rapids too, but Check. yeah, <laughs> roasters and madcap. And yeah, I think that might be some of the Dutch influence too, but so really great coffee roasters here in town. And, you know, I mean, that was part of my day, right? And it was also working from home, it was a way to engage or meet friends for a quick chat or a check-in and not having that like physical connection or even that break, right? Like it was, I could get up in the morning, I could do my yoga, I could jump on my screen, I could work for four or five hours and then I would go get lunch with somebody or the coffee shop or dinner. Right. And so not having those like hard stops in my life, right? Or those breaks or even that human connection. I mean, mm. I love it that you and I have connected in a really meaningful way through the screen. So I can believe in human connection through the screen, but it's still not the same, right? And so I miss that for sure. And, but I also feel very productive in this like new screen environment, I guess, right? Because I'm not in the car running back and forth to meetings or that sort of thing. So that part, I like pieces of that I'd like to keep around in my life and sort of a slower pace, right? Oddly enough, coming from nonprofits though, I would say I don't need, like we do a lot of networking around nonprofit fundraising in Grand Rapids. I'm sure that's a model that most people use across the country, but it seems incredibly prevalent here. And while some of those events I love and cherish and will always attend, there are plenty of them that I'm just like, mm, do we, we don't have to do that anymore. So I, I think just like really getting clear on what was important to me and what was a priority and COVID made that sometimes easier, right? It was, it was also easier to jump on a bento on a Sunday afternoon when I knew I wasn't going to meet like friends for brunch or something like that. Right. Yeah. So I think had Bento tried to launch, like say today, when everyone wants to get back out and be, you know, personally connecting with people, I don't know if it would have been successful. So like, I think there were really serendipitous if you were able to find them, right? And I think you and I benefit from that just like embedded curiosity, right? Like once this all happened, it wasn't like, oh, I got to shut down and the end of the world is happening. Like 
the end of the outside world was happening, right? But then it was like, all right, well, what's happening inside for Michelle's world, right? And how do I get clear on that? And so I feel like it was the hardest year, but it was also the most beautiful and like heart-wrenching year in the sense of like what was happening to people in the world. But internally, I felt like I was growing in a way that I was never able to before because I had that pause. So yeah, I agree. Yeah, 100%. And I'm grateful that we were able to connect through through the Vento Society and, and we have this amazing relationship now. It's funny. I mean, I always say that I have met so many interesting people in the last year that I don't know in person a lot. Yeah. Like I even we hire our head of product in one of my companies and I've been working with him almost half a year and I don't know him in person. <laughs> I know. That's so funny that you say that because... We just hired someone who's graduating from college in a month and we, you know, we're super excited about her. And she was like, but I've never met any of you. And we were like, oh, oh, yeah. you're right. Oh my gosh. Like, and we had totally forgotten that piece of it, that that was like hard for her. Right. Cause we've obviously, I mean, we've never met her either, but we've all, you know, the rest of the team all knew each other in person. And so it was like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. totally. It was jarring that we yeah. forgot. Yeah. yeah. So it is interesting. I think Bento, at least for me, Bento taught me that diving into people as people and like really trying to understand their why, as you say, and their mission and who they are not. I think through the world, it's so easy to just be like, oh, what do you do? And then we get labeled for the job we do or the title yeah. we hold. Right. But I felt like Bento and covid said, take a step back. Like, I mean, like the people, like the conversations we had in those groups. I mean, I don't know. I've had those conversations sometimes with my family or my best friends, right? Like, and we were all strangers. So I think there's like power in that, in a way that is really exciting to me. Right. And I hope that that benefit can carry forward from COVID, but I hope that we can also hug in hug people and, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Some sort of retreat or something where we can meet in person. Yes. Uh, it, it's interesting what you're saying about the what do you do? Because even when I was doing the homework to, to for, for this interview, I was looking at things that I didn't know because we never talk about it, but we have, because we always have different type of conversations. So, you know, oh, this is a company. What is really she's doing for this other company, whatever. So that, that's never been part of, of our conversations. But anyway, Michelle, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. It was it was a pleasure to have you here and to try to replicate one of our conversations in an episode here. Hopefully we were able to, to do our job. Uh, and how can people find you today? And what is the best way they can reach you? I mean, which social media you use, which ones you don't use, so people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about any of your the things that you're doing. Sure. Thank you. They can reach me at Revalue, which my email is mhooksum, H-O-E-X-U-M, at revalueinvesting.com. That's probably one of the easiest ways. Or LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. I always think it's amazing when people link into you and you're like, wait, we have like all these people in common, but I've never, yeah. you know, I, yeah. so LinkedIn is hands down my preferred, I don't even think of it as social media, but I guess it is. So LinkedIn, I do have an Instagram account, but I honestly don't update it very often, okay. but you can follow me there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Perfect. And again, Michelle, thank you very much again. Thank you for sharing all those 
experiences and I really value all the all the time that you're putting into this and hopefully people can learn from our conversation. Thank you, Daniel. Being on Purposely Local was a really, it was really fun. So thank you. 